The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 289 for Monday, October 4th, 2010. Good folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. This is the beginning of October. And we're here with the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. As I said, I'm Dave Hamilton. This is a show where we, and by we, I mean John F. Braun and I. Hi, John. Hi, Dave. Uh, we get together once a week, sometimes twice, and go through your Mac tips, your Mac questions, your Mac problems, and try and shed as much light on these things as we can. Today, I'm proud to say, John, we are joined by Pilot Pete. Again. Your safety observer. That's right. <laughs> Pete's here to make sure we don't you go too, check right, guys. too far off the reservation. That's right. Um, so, John, last week we did our Cool Stuff Found show, number 288, which if you haven't heard, go back and listen to. Lots of great stuff in it. But uh, we've got I want to start with a couple of things that are follow-ups to previous cool stuff we found. And the first one, John comes in the form of a story from you about, uh, really? Yeah. About a, uh, or so I'm told something to do with a DVD that you had to get and make or something. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? I'm going to tell you. So I got an email from a friend of mine, Leslie. Um, her son is in a marching band and she had a video that she wanted to be put on a DVD so her parents, I guess her parents are not computer savvy, but they'd like to see, um, you know, see the video of this. So she sends a link to it in email, you know, with the PS, you know, John, I know you could figure this out being a computer genius. So, you know, she was trying to flatter me. <laughs> um, no, she said that. But anyways, and so I'm like, well, you know, I haven't really burned a DVD in a while. So I figure, well, you know, the easiest way is probably, you know, let me let me get an iDVD. iDVD is really neat. I've used it a couple of times. It, uh, you know, has the quick mode. Where you basically start it up, say, okay, here, you know, here's a theme. You can pick a theme. And so I picked a, you know, nice fancy theme for the title screen and all that. And then it has another row saying, drag your video here. Well, first off, the first tip is, so it was on YouTube. So that means it's a flash video, at least when you access it through the Mac. Right. And normally they don't give you a nice handy buddy button saying download video to uh, FLV file, you know, flash video file. However, I found a tip. I'm like, oh, man, you know, there are sites that will do this for you, be an intermediary. But I wanted to just get it done quickly. And I found a Mac OS 10 Hints article that said, hey, you know, there is a way to do this with Safari. And the way to do it with Safari is when you bring up the activity window. I forget the exact uh, series of keystrokes to do that, Dave. But Safari it's, has it's a very. In the, it's in the window menu and, and activities right there. It's kind of like you may be able to. A, but yeah, right. So basically, that is showing you all the individual little data streams for graphics, sounds, whatever. And the tip was basically, you know, load the page and you will see uh, something that has a little progress bar and it's getting larger and larger. Guess what? That's the flash video being downloaded. Okay. So if you intercept that, it'll then go in the download window, just like anything else and download it as an FLV file. Okay, well, that's good. But then here's the other problem. Well, no, it wasn't a problem. And then I was trying to figure why it worked. And I'm like, well, you know what? Let me take this FLV file and drag it into iDVD. And lo and behold, when I dragged it into one of the little squares that accepted the video, it showed a little plus sign saying, yeah, okay, I'm cool. You know, if you want to bring this over here. And I'm like, right. Wait, that shouldn't have worked. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. As, mean as, as much as I like the Mac and, and, you know, it's mostly seamless and, and easy to use. I'm like, 
I didn't expect that to work, but it did. Well, here's why it did work, because then I dug around a little bit online to find out why it did work, and I actually disabled the feature that made this work. And what made it work, Dave, is something that we've talked about in the past, but I never thought about how useful it would be until this came up. Uh, Perian, I believe it is. Perian, Perian? P-E-R-I-A-N dot org. Yep, and it, we've talked about it in Cool Stuff Found. I've talked about it in my sessions at Macworld. It is the thing that it, the most important thing I never remember that I have because you install it and it's done. Uh, and what it is, is it's a preference pane or it installs as a preference pane, but it, it's got a series of codecs, which are things to set in this case, decompress or uh, decipher various different video formats. And it's great to solve all those little problems. Like we've talked about before, John, I mean, this is one of them, but, you know, you get those weird Windows media files from uh, actually, I guess Windows media files are with flip format. So that's another one to use. And we'll put links to both of these essential tools in the show notes. But sometimes you get weird AVIs and things like that in your, uh, you know, as email attachments from friends. And for the most part, this thing just makes it all of them work. Yeah. Like this. And what it was yeah. doing, as far as I can tell, because when I dug in a little bit, so. There was a little confusion on my part, and I think I cleared it up. The thing is, the FLV file did have H.264 video within it. But the problem was, is if you drag that over with a flash wrapper, iDVD is going to be like, oh, I, don't, I don't know what that is. No, it's not QuickTime. Go away. Right. So underneath the cover somewhere, I, I believe Perian stepped in and said, oh, you want a QuickTime wrapper, but it's a flash wrapper, but it's H.264. I'll, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. Cool. And that's exactly what it did. So when I burned it, because I when I burned it, I thought, no, this isn't going to work, is it? But no, it did. I put it in the DVD or Blu-ray player. Uh, the menu came up and it played the video uh, as as it appeared. So, so I was very pleased that that stepped in and, and I actually had to dig to figure out why what I didn't think would work. Cool. All right. Awesome. So so that was one cool previous and, and it was probably many years ago that we first mentioned period. So it's always worth a, a re-mention. Uh, Hazel is something that we've mentioned a couple of times. And Christopher wrote in about how he uses Hazel. Very cool. He says, I've been using Hazel for a little over six months and it has helped me make the transition from paper bills to managing all my bills electronically. Now, uh, before we explain how he's done this, Hazel is something that watches folders on your Mac and performs actions. It can reclassify uh, where documents are, it can rename them. It can cause all sorts of things like that to happen. Uh, in addition to various other things like managing your trash and all that. Uh, so he says, I was initially worried that a bill would get lost in my email inbox. I have 16 accounts I need to manage and keep track of. Hazel watches my downloads folder for PDFs of bills. I downloaded. I've set a rule up for each of my accounts, phone, gas and electric credit card, insurance, internet, etc. This was tricky at first, as each company has a slightly different way they want you to download the bill. But the Hazel rule either uses the source URL of the PDF or some text within the PDF, e.g. an account number, to identify the, the uh, company that the PDF came from. Hazel then moves the bill to a folder I've set up for that account, say Bills and then American Express, colors it red for To Do, and then makes an alias which is moved to a folder on the desktop called Unpaid Bills. This is the digital version of the stack of unpaid bills I used to keep on my desk and lets me see quickly what bills have yet to be paid. Once paid, I delete the alias and label the original bill gray for archive. I've also entered each bill as a recurring task in OmniFocus. OmniFocus sends me alerts when a bill is coming due. This is helpful in case I've forgotten to look up my unpaid bills folder. 
When a bill is paid, I check it off in OmniFocus and a ta- new task for that bill is automatically created for the following month. And so it goes. There's no way I've yet found to connect Hazel with OmniFocus, but once I set up these recurring tasks, everything has been seamless and easy. That's awesome, Christopher. I, I Hazel, it's one of those things where you've got all this functionality and you can use it and morph it in different ways. And this is a hugely creative use of this. Uh, we've kind of had this in the hopper for a while. I wanted to share it. And so I figured if we kept it till the end of the show, John, like we always have, we never would. So mm-hmm. we move these to the top and away we go. Shall we move on to a question from Brian? Ooh, yes. Good one. Okay. Uh, Actually, you know, before we move on to Brian, I want to talk about our first sponsor for this show, which is PDF pen five from smile or smilesoftware.com. So PDF pen five came out on September 9th and then something really cool came out on September 23rd. Take control came out with take control for PDF pen five. Uh, on September 23rd. So lots of great stuff in that ebook to go along with PDF pen five. One of the coolest new features of PDF pen five PDF pen is a piece of software that lets you manipulate PDF files in lots of different ways. Uh, You can paste in graphics, you can edit text, you can uh, rearrange pages. I use it all the time. It's a very rudimentary use, but PDF pen makes it easy I paste my signature into a document that I need to sign that way. I don't, it never has to leave the electronic realm. I can just paste a signature and send it back as a PDF and I'm good to go. PDF pen five adds redaction. Let's say you need to send a form somewhere, but you want to make sure that a specific piece of information has been removed. Uh, Like, you know, there's an example where they say that, you know, you need to send uh, a tax form somewhere where someone needs to see it, but you don't want your social security number on it. You just want them to see maybe other information on your tax form. So you can redact things. This is make sure that whatever data you have highlighted to redact is removed entirely from the file. There's no undo. There's no way to dig and get it back. It's not just masked out. It is not in that file. And you can do so with a search and replace type feature where you search and redact uh, as well. So PDF pen five, it's the first version. It is Mac OS 10.6 only, but that also means that they were able to go 64 bit with this, which is pretty cool. Uh, Gives it not only a little bit more speed, but better capacity to handle much larger PDFs. Uh, It now does multi-core for its optical character recognition, which means it's using multiple cores in your Mac to convert any uh, graphical text into editable text. Uh, So check this out. Smile software, uh, PDF pen five. Of course there is a free trial. And then once you're convinced it's 60 bucks, smilesoftware.com. And with that, John, it is time to move on to Brian. Brian has a, an interesting issue. He says, John and Dave, is there a workaround for configuring a Snow Dual Ethernet base station 802.11b? It serves my purposes. However, I'm on Snow Leopard and can no longer change or set any of the settings. I realize uh, the security in this that offered is minimal and I'm comfortable with that, but I would like to be able to turn it on. And the issue that he's having here, John, is something that you've been through before uh, because the current version of airport admin utility will not work with this old base station and the uh, old software to manage this won't work with snow leopard. So he's in a bit of a pickle. Is there a way out, John? 
Sadly, oh no, there is. And you know, I ran into this too. So when I was upgrading my mom's setup, she had, a, as you recall, Dave, a iBook G4 mm-hmm. and one of these spaceship. So, so there were two flavors of the spaceship uh, base station. I think there was the uh, graphite, as they call it, which was the first. Then they went to the snow. Um, and my mom had one of those. And I thought, you know, so once we migrated everything over to the new machine, I thought, oh, well, the next thing, I just want to reconfigure and change some things about the network setting. And I ran over at Utility under Snow Leopard, and lo and behold, it didn't show up. So he's right. You're, you're kind of... You're horked. Wait, you you're do? not. Oh. Uh, so, so first off, a, a finger wag at Apple. What, why can't you see it? Because my understanding is that these things all operate on the, the, the same basic principle it's that it's a snmp maybe they're doing something proprietary but my understanding is that they're all snmp configurable and the airport utility is just a specialized version of something that can read and write these uh, i believe they're called mibs you know or or they're they're descriptions of data stored in the base station okay but i think apple has kept a lot of that info kind of close to their vest and they haven't really released a lot of it so some people kind of take a guess But anyways, the good news is that, Dave, uh, you actually pointed out, which was something that I pointed out earlier, someone wrote a Java utility to do this. So I think there are two options. So one is you can get something that's called, I think, yeah, Airport Configurator, and it is designed to interface with these older uh, either Graphite or Snow base stations that I think are either 802B, and I think some of them were G. Well, the G ones definitely are are configurable Okay. Um, from the current utility, because I have two of those. And oh, they, all right. And, uh, they work fine, at least in terms of that. So, all right. Yeah. The one I was accessing, yeah, the, the one that my mom had was definitely a B, B only. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, yeah, I mean, the, the first instinct I had was, let me go to Apple and just find an old version. But I guess, yeah, maybe the problem is, yeah, it, it's so old it won't run on the latest OS. I guess that's that's the issue. Whereas Java, thank goodness, Java is kind of Java. Java will in theory, pretty much run on any platform. And of course, Mac OS back to probably even the first version had a Java virtual machine that would run this utility. So, right. And it's actually not just Java. It'll run on, you know, Windows or Unix or, or anything, as long as they have a, a JVM that, that it likes to talk to. So, um, cool. But again, Dave, I think that deserves a, the, maybe a finger wag or a fist shake. Well, why are they abandoning the, well, Apple does that. Yeah, I was going to say we we can we can shake our fist and wag our fingers, but it's not going to. It, we shouldn't. We should not be surprised by this. Because right. what it caused me to do was basically, I was like, "Mom, it's time to buy a new one." Because Thank it God. was an 802.b device, so it was, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a, a bottleneck for for the whole network. Right, and and that's true. You know, it, it's good to remember. Most of us have cable modem connections or DSL connections, some sort of high speed that's faster than what 802.11b, which was, you know, it was a what, uh, 11 megabits per second. But really, you're only going to get half that at best and usually slightly less than half. So, you know, you're talking four to six megabits a second transfer speed uh over your wireless network. And that's cumulative total for everyone on your wireless network, not just any uh, one client. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you've got a 10 megabit, I have the slowest connection Comcast will sell me and that's 12 megabits down at its slowest point. It's, you know, at a higher level, I get burstable speed and I can go up to 20 sometimes. So maybe even 30. Right. And also I upgraded because uh, I also convinced them to get a, 
uh, TiVo HD with the 802.G adapter. Ah, uh, yeah. So at least now that's running a little faster. Now still have to get them an HD TV, but that, that that's coming. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, one step. Hey, John, it, it what I'll say is that the Apple does not fall too far from the tree, and I say that with no, mom. it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I got an email actually from mom the other uh, uh, less than a week ago saying, "What's Blu-ray?" Hey, so, look at that. So the bug, uh, and it was funny because, and, and what's HD DVD? And so, you know, I, oh, well, here's wow. the news. Yeah, HD DVD. I don't know where she got, I, I mean, I'm, in, I'm impressed. <laughs> Maximum respect to Mom Braun. Yeah, all right. All right. Uh, moving on to the next question. This is, and I hope I pronounce your name right. This is Quirilio from sunny Santo Domingo. I've not been able to auto mount the disc on my time capsule. I have tried putting an alias of the disc in login items and no joy. I can mount it manually, though, by double clicking on the time capsule icon. Before, we had an air disc application that just did all that, but it no longer works on Snow Leopard. Now I rely on your vast experience in order to resolve this geek challenge. Keep up the oh, good work. Boy. Flattery will get your question. Well, I don't know about everywhere, <laughs> but it'll get a lot in the show. So, uh, OK. I've been through this before. I had to go through this with my Drobo uh, because I have my Drobo attached to uh, my uh, my G4 that's running Mac OS X server. And I couldn't get that to mount right either. Uh, and here's what I found. It, this is the path I took and I tried this with a time capsule and it also worked. So first in the shared section, open up the finder and in the shared section of the finder sidebar, click on your time capsule like you would. Once you see the drive name appear inside the window on the right, double click on the drive name. At this point, the the contents of the drive will now appear in the window and the drive name will be sitting at the top and there'll be a little icon of your drive next to it. From the title bar, right where that icon is, grab that icon. You're going to have to try a couple of times to make sure you get it and it will appear to detach from the title bar. Drag that icon over to the finder sidebar and as you move to the devices section, you're going to see a little br like black line uh, that makes it somewhat intuitive that you're going to put whatever you're dragging in between wherever that black line appears. So find some place that you want it. You can move it later and drop it. It's got to be in the devices section. Now your Mac is seeing this as a device, as a disc, if you will, even though it's not. Once you've done this, now go into system preferences accounts login items uh or login rather click the plus and then add that device from the finder sidebar highlight it and then click add uh that now will do it as long as your time capsule of course is alive on the network and as long as your mac can get on the network when it restarts that disc from the time capsule will come up anytime. And this works with other things, not just this on time capsules, but yeah, there, there's a pesky little thing that I, I noticed. It might've been snow leopard where it started. It might've even been leopard, but, uh, but that's, that's the magic there. I, this is slated to go up as a Mac geek answers article uh, because it, I think it's a good question to, to have a, a persistent answer to. So thank you for sending it in Quirilio. You got anything to say on that, John? Oh, I agree with you. It, it, it's misleading because what you see in the shared section may lead you to believe it's something that you can just drag over. But as, yes, it turns out you can't. You're, you're exactly right. You got you to peel a couple layers of the onion away in order to get something. No, really, you have yeah. to. And I, I find it kind of silly, too. I mean, it, it defines it. I'd look in the finder window. It, it calls it a share point. Right. 
So it's like one level higher than what the finder really wants to, or at least the login items wants to deal with. Right. And it right. leads you there. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't know why it is that way. I have to think that though I have found this path that works, that there's some better path. I, I, I just have to think that I haven't found it. So maybe it doesn't, but it seems odd. I mean, it, it could be because, for example, I, I have, I think, five different share points on my uh, my desktop machine. Yep. So it lists, you know, Power Mac G5, but then I have a podcast directory, my user directory, the high level. So it shows five different things there. So maybe they just figured it kind of made sense to display it in that fashion. But, you know, I mean, it'd be nice if they said, if you tried to do it, oh, wait, no, I can't. Yeah, I don't understand this. How about the stuff below it? You want to you want to mount that instead? Right. I don't know the error it gives you if you try to do it, if it just doesn't work. Oh, no, it lets you put it in there. It just doesn't do (laughs) auto mounting. Yeah. Yeah. There's no error. Oh, that's even worse. Yes. Yeah. So you're under the impression that something's going to happen and it it doesn't. Very frustrating. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's wacky. Uh, the, The side effect of this is it also gives you quick access to that particular SharePoint because you now have it defined as a device. So it's listed right up there in the very top section of the finder. So makes it easy to get to hmm. all right uh let's uh let's go on to taylor here john and uh this, i'm sure this will spark some conversation amongst us hi john and dave i have an email usage question that hopefully y'all can help with my main email address is through yahoo mail and at&t uverse i use mail.app to download my email with uh, using pop uh, onto my 27 inch imac running snow leopard i often leave this machine running uh, for various reasons uh, so it's it's periodically checking email throughout the day and downloading the messages. I also have an iPhone 3GS and would like to start using it with this email address as well. I have two things I'm concerned are going to happen, though, depending on how I set the POP account settings. One, I'll download emails to one device, deleting the ones I don't need and so forth, just to have the down, to, just to have to download the same emails to the other device and deal with them there, too. Or, alternatively, two, I'll download email to one device and not be able to download them to the other because they've already been deleted from the server or, and so forth. The obvious solution I can think of is to use IMAP instead of POP, but as far as I can tell, Yahoo Mail doesn't offer IMAP. Uh, I'm, an, I'm a mobile me subscriber, so maybe I could forward all my Yahoo Mail to my mobile me email and use IMAP that way, but I'm hoping y'all have a more elegant solution, since I would think uh, th- that uh, this type of problem would, would be a common problem, so, uh, with iPhones being so, so common. So how do you deal with email on a Mac and an iPhone? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Here's where you cut me off. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. So this is an interesting one. I'm going to take this in one direction, John. I have a feeling you might have a, a, a another way of looking at this, but I'll, I'll, I'll start. Mm-hmm. So the unfortunate part is that Yahoo does not easily support IMAP. It actually does. But in order to start an IMAP session, you have to send a very non-standard command to Yahoo's IMAP server to get it rolling. There are custom builds of Thunderbird, apparently, that will do this. But uh, and there's also some proxy services that you can put as like gateways, if you will, uh, to get in between you and Yahoo IMAP. And, and, and they'll send this wacky command. But you're certainly you know, you could use the proxy from an iPhone, but it's getting wacky and you're relying on a third party that may or may not be here next week. So uh, so I, I would I would abandon the concept of trying to get IMAP on Yahoo to work. So. Uh, if you have mobile me, which of course you said you do, you can use IMAP with that and be happy. Uh, if you don't, 
and 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 perhaps even if you do, but uh, but don't want to be reliant on it. Uh, Gmail offers IMAP with its free accounts and it works incredibly well. It's what I use. I believe it's what John uses. I'm, I mean, I know it's what Pete uses. Uh, and there's only the only weird thing. And we've been through this many times before is that there's a little bit of wackiness in how you have to set Gmail up to make it work, to make your Macs work very happily with its, uh, with Gmail's wacky IMAP implementation. But, uh, but we've got an article of, of Mac Geek Gab answers as it turns out. And uh, we'll link to that about what you have to do. Uh, it's better to do it that way because then you can just go through it right on the screen there and, and you're not missing anything by trying to listen and go. So, uh, all right, Pete's trying to interject here. So what I was going to say, and, and yeah. you can keep your Yahoo mail address and send from Gmail appearing to be your. So if you have to keep your email address, that's yep. the beautiful thing about it. Yep. That's right. That's right. Yep. Good point. Good point. So, John, you have uh, you have another way of looking at this, I think. Of course, of course. Well, and and this is what I do. So I st- so I use a combination of IMAP and POP. But I think what I found so so initially, I think until I started using multiple devices, uh, specifically an iDevice, I would just do all my email on one computer. That was it with a POP account. Of course, that gets a bit more complex when you have more than one device. And I found what I went to, which I think is a happy medium. Uh, to help maintain things among multiple machines is there is a setting in mail. When you go to the account setup for a specific email account, remove copy from server after retrieving a message. And then it has a time window, which I set to one week. So what that means is that picking up the mail. And I think he hinted at this, you know, the, the, there's one way to do it. And that this is how I do it between my iPod touch or the eye as I like to call it. Cause I know a lot of people really love that concatenation um, no, yeah, we all do. We, you know, we some all people do. really hate people saying I touch. I like it. Anyways, iPod touch. So the thing is, it will appear on multiple devices and it'll sit on the server for about a week and then it goes away. The reason I do that is so it doesn't build up and take up all my space. So, so you, I, still, I, you haven't forwarded your, your optimum no. online pop account off to Gmail and, and, no. and done the consolidated inbox thing. No, I just run mail app and I pick it up on okay. my MacBook. Uh, sometimes I run it on the desktop machine. And if I run the uh, iPod touch, it'll pick up whatever it hasn't seen yet and store it, you know, locally on the iPod touch. Now, sometimes there may be a slight mismatch because I may drag it from a folder. I may delete it on the Mac and sure and not delete it. But, but to me, that's good enough without, you know, changing too much in the plumbing. Yes, of course, someday I should forward everything and make it IMAP. Uh, but I haven't gotten around to that yet. Uh, IMAP is the right way to do it, though, I think is is what I'm saying. But, but yeah. POP can, so, as long as you don't insist on POP removing things, because I think that's the mode that a lot of people are used to and used to setting up. And of course, once you delete it, it's, it's gone. Yep. At the risk of insulting people, too, let me, let me dumb it down and, and remind people that IMAP is basically a way to consolidate your mail. So if you're looking on an iPod Touch or a CrackBerry or in a laptop and a desktop and all that, all your mail accounts appear the same. If you've read it on your uh, iPhone and you go back to your laptop, it says, hey, there, here's your message and it's been read, that type of thing, so that people aren't... Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. No, 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 no. You're right. Always and good it, to explain it. Yeah, yeah. well, it's managed on the servers that everybody's right. seeing pretty much the same thing, or as pop... Uh, to make it clear, you're going to the server saying, hey, give me what I haven't seen yet. And the problem is that may be different depending on which client is requesting the information. And also, as I pointed out, how you set up the server. Do you 
I mean, yeah. So with IMAP, for example, Pete, if you delete a message on an IMAP server, then it's gone. Nobody's going to see it uh, past that point again because it's server managed. Right. And I think they were actually developed at pretty much the same time, maybe within a year or two. Yeah, I, IMAP has come into favor more recently. I mean, it's still been you know probably ten years, but uh, but yeah, you're right. I think IMAP it might even be older than Pop, and then Pop was created because uh, of the storage capacity problem that IMAP created. I don't know. Oh yeah, on the server. Right, because yeah, because yeah. Pop, IMAP is a far more resource intensive, both in terms of CPU and in, of course storage, because. You are storing all of your mail, including if archives, if you want, sent mail, drafts, and trash, even uh, yeah. all on the server. So. But of course, now with, you know, terabyte and what's beyond that? Petabyte? We'll see petabyte soon. But with drives being so cheap, it, it yeah, and the processor overhead, same thing. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it does take a little bit more, but nothing it's, on the order of what it used to. Or maybe it does. I don't know. significantly more. Oh, having, okay. okay. Having run our own uh, IMAP servers and, and POP servers for years, the, the IMAP stuff, when somebody's interacting with it, it it'll peg a CPU. Um, it, it, okay, because it's, it's handing all the work over to the server. Correct. Well, that's really cool that Google offers it free then. It, that's, it sure that's is. Nice. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No. In exchange for all my knowing everything about you. <laughs> yes, of course. That's right. <laughs> Number, location of tattoos. <laughs> that's right. I'll remind everyone. Yeah, we, we praise Google here, and, and they do. They offer some great services for free and make it impossible for, for us to not take them up on it. But, uh, but you know, their, their motto of do no evil uh, does not mean, therefore, we always do good. It means find out where the line is for evil and tow right up to it. And everything up until that is A-OK with the motto. Uh, while we're on the subject of multiple email and devices and all of that. Trevor has a question. Hey, Maggie Gibbs, this is Trevor, and I have a problem with uh, mail on my iPod Touch. It's a pretty simple problem, but I have two email accounts, and I'm wondering if there's any way to access both of them. And I haven't upgraded iOS 4 because there's something wrong with my computer. Um, but that's not a Mac, so I'm not sure if you can help me with that. Uh, however, the iPod Touch problem still stands how do you add another email account uh this is where you cut me off all right cool thanks trevor um yeah it's actually pretty straightforward you can add multiple accounts on on your uh and you can do it with ios 3 or ios 4 you're going to go into the settings go to a mail contacts and calendars and then simply add another account here for mail the one difference that you will experience after that with iOS 3 versus iOS 4 is that on iOS 3, you have to go in the mail app and back out of your inbox up to the accounts. You'll see a second account listed there now. You go down to the other account, you pick your inbox, and down you go and see that. You cannot see them all together like you can on your Mac or, or various other IMAP clients. It sounds like you're on a Windows machine, but but that's fine. Uh with iOS 4, you can see one consolidated inbox that shows you everything in all the inboxes for all the accounts that you have defined in one list, uh, just like you can on your Mac. So uh, so that may be a reason to, to try to figure out how to update to iOS 4. And sure, go ahead and send your Windows question in. It's possible, John, or I might have uh, have a little advice to to help you with there. Anything to add to this one, John? Yeah, Um no, you can definitely, when I was, um, even on iOS 3, on my iPod Touch, I was running 
an exchange account. Yep. Two IMAP accounts and a pop account. Okay. So, uh, yeah, as you point out, the, the nice thing is that iOS 4 gives you the potential, though I, you may or may not want to do this, is lump it all together in one big honking right. inbox. That may or may not be what you want to do. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't think technically there's, there's any limit to the number of email accounts you can, you can have on the iPod Touch. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there is, uh, but well, maybe based on space, but I, or yeah, I mean, it's probably something like 256 or I don't know. Cool. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah. It's probably some order, you know, of order of eight number, right? Order of two number power of two. That's what I'm looking for. Why can't I say that? You know what I can say? It's time to talk about our second sponsor, which is Circus Ponies. Circus Ponies Notebook version three is the product we're talking about here. Notebook is at its core, a very, very simple app. You just open it up and you can create a notebook. It, in fact, the interface looks just like a white lined piece of notepaper. But it goes so much deeper than that. And the concept is that you use this to organize not only your text, but your pictures, your PDFs, uh, your audio files, all relating to a specific topic. Now, Pete, you use Notebook, and I think a couple people in your household use it. Exactly. Yeah, we and it's in two words. It's a data aggregator. Any data you've got, bring it together. It, it's incredible. Um, we use it. uh uh, my son is using it for school. I okay. used it to get through uh, uh, school last year when I upgraded. But you know, I could put, I could tab uh, my hydraulics uh, notes into one section and my electrics notes into another section and my pneumatics notes into a, a third section and and go back to them. And yeah, there were cool little videos and that kind of stuff. Drag them in there and go back to it. So it made studying for tests and that sort of thing great and also easy to study for recurrent. Go back. Oh, well, how does that work again? And oh, yeah. So it's really nice, and a lot of PDF files and notes that others had brought together. I was able to drag those in there and look at them and and work with them. So it's cool. Yeah, and and it, the other thing I was noticing about it, uh, it's got a lot of templates too. So to help you get started, if you want to, you know, it's got prepare for a trial, manage a project, uh, write an outline for a TV or film shoot, those sorts of things are in there. Huh. It's all cool. It, yeah, it's amazing. And plus, I think I mentioned once before, but it's a great little to-do list that'll you know check off. You know, really? Put in, yeah, put in your to-dos and then check them off as you go. And cool. So you can set that on a page in your notebook as well. Yeah, it's a great life organizer. Okay. So. All right. So that's notebook from Circus Ponies. Of course, there's a free download available at circusponies.com, and then when you're ready, it's forty nine ninety five for a standard license. And if you are using it for school, like actual school where you're an, it's an accredited school, uh, you qualify or most likely qualify. I guess I should qualify my qualification statement and say it's 30 bucks if you're a student. Twenty nine ninety five. Uh, and again, forty nine ninety five for a standard license, all available at circusponies.com. I think it's time to go to Ken here, John. This this will mm. be interesting. Ken says. Three years ago, when my iBook was two years old, Safari began crashing more often than not. I found a fix by using Firefox for the last year I owned the iBook. Two years ago, I bought a new MacBook and hooray, Safari didn't crash on the new computer. So I went back to using it. Now, exactly two years later, right on schedule, the Safari crash switch has obviously been thrown. And there we go with regular Safari crashes again. 
I auto-update my software every week. I use only the software that came with the computer and three or four other small apps that were bought, brought over from the transfer two years ago. The hard drive is 70 gigs used out of a 160 gig drive. I'm running Mac OS 10 Leopard 10.5.8 with four gigs of RAM, but I've never seen even two of those gigs fully used. Is anyone else having this problem? I'd rather not use Firefox again as it doesn't have all my bookmarks. So it's quite a hassle, but at least I can get to Google and go from there. Well, this is interesting, John. He's on to us. We flipped the secret Safari switch and he's caught us. Oh, no, wait, that we didn't do that, did we? Well, no, he caught Apple. That's I'm right. surprised he's the first person that's found the two year Safari crash feature. Uh, so, no, there there is no two year Safari Crash no. feature to no. Ken, and no. thanks for uh, no. thanks for uh, allowing us to have a little fun with that. But uh, it, it Safari does store a bunch of data, John. And it's, well, well, first, first, Dave, I, I got to interject here. Yeah, uh, Ken didn't exactly. I don't know if I should. I, I won't wag my finger. I'm going to think about wagging my finger. But All right. I, I could have used a bit more clarification on what exactly he meant by crash. Ah. Uh. Now, I'm, I'm assuming, though I, I don't want to assume, but I'm going to assume that it was an application crash. So unexpectedly what, quit kind of thing. Unexpectedly quit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but I don't know if it, it could have been two other things. Now, you and I have both seen these, Dave. One far more often than the other is when Flash crashes. So that usually doesn't take down the browser, though. I guess it could. Well, well not with the latest with, Safari. It, it does with Leopard. Right. It was. Snow- well, which was it? Where? Well, that's what I'm saying. The, the latest Safari, I believe, now does the isolation. So he could, in fact, it could, in fact, depending on the version he's running, I think it, it may. What I'm saying is that it could be Flash or QuickTime causing this. Yep. Those are the two things that I see now. The latest Safari because it isolates. I guess uh, anything done with a plugin, which of course both Flash and QuickTime do that. Now, again, Dave, I've seen way more things saying, you know, Flash unexpectedly quit, which, of course, to me is not unexpected anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to assume that's not what's happening here simply because he didn't. Because at that point, I don't know. Safari wouldn't have crashed. Right. You're not getting a message that Safari crashed. You're getting a message that that the plugin crashed. Right. And then Safari still works just fine in those instances. I guess what I would like to see in these cases, though, is that you always get a window that shows uh, or usually get a window that shows a pretty detailed list i think it shows a, a what you call a um stack trace or it shows a, a, a history of what software routines were called before everything decided to to stop working and sometimes if you look at those not a lot of it is very technical and has hex values and all that stuff there but you may be able to see the name as something that may have had something to do with the region to crash i mean sometimes i've seen flash in there sometimes i've seen uh webkit in there you know, which is, uh, you know, Apple's infrastructure and you may see QuickTime in there. So um, getting that detail could be helpful. So, again, I, I, I won't even think of wagging my finger. But if that if that data is available, it can help us do a better job of trying to figure out what the heck's causing this. Yep. So. All right. So now let's answer the question. Uh, my right. ge- I, And I am going to assume that it's just Safari unexpectedly quitting the, the app itself. And it's not a kernel panic of the system, nor is it a, you know, smaller just plug-in or, or what have you. And and with that, Safari does store a lot of information. It creates a cache that it piles stuff into to make it faster the next time it needs to load that data. It saves you bandwidth. It saves you time. So emptying that cache may be 
the would be the first step here. And you can do that from right inside Safari. You can go to uh, the Safari menu and choose empty cache. That may fix your problem. It may not. If it doesn't, try running Onyx to do some. Uh, it will also clean Safari's caches. It will clean them in a different way than Safari does. It will actually wipe out the file. So that can fix if there's a corrupted file. Uh, and that might help as well. Obviously, regular reboots, you know, and by by regular, you know, we don't mean every day. This isn't Windows, but uh, but, you know, <laughs> once every couple of weeks is is it good. I think certainly more than once a month rebooting uh, your Mac is going to leave you in a much happier state. And Safari does, you know, chew up RAM. So quitting Safari every day uh, is not a bad idea. So uh, I think I think cleaning out the caches either with Safari or from Onyx is going to be the the step to the answer here, and it, it may be the the entire answer here. That that's that's my thought on solving this. Um, I'm going to suggest a couple of other places to look, Dave. So in okay. and I'm looking at my Leopard machine now. Uh, in Safari, in the preferences, there's a security tab. There are a couple of things here you may want to try, or just to look at. So one, it says show cookies. Now, of course, if you can show cookies, you could also get rid of them. So I think these other utilities may do that as well, but this is something that's more direct. So maybe you got a cookie with a bad value. I don't know. It, it's a stretch. But there's also show databases. I'm going to look in there too, though, though I haven't seen a lot of apps use this feature. They can. So see what's in there as well. But those are both in the security tab within the preferences within Safari. Cool. All right. Um, I'm trying to think of where to go with this here. You know, we've been talking about mail and IMAP and multiple accounts and all of that stuff. So, so let's, let's, let's finish that out with, with David's question here. Uh, David writes, I know you've talked about this before and I've gone back and, Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. 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 Uh, gone back and reviewed notes, but still can't get mail configured correctly. I have a work Mac, a home Mac and a laptop all uh, Mac pros with 10.6.4 all updated. We'll assume that the laptop is a MacBook pro. Uh, also have an iPhone and an iPad running the latest OSs for each. I actively use three email accounts, a work account, a me.com account and Gmail. Problem number one is that I can, can cannot control all my sent mailboxes. I would like all sent mail, no matter which device I send from to end up in my sent mailbox on Gmail. It seems that all my devices are fighting against each other. I have tried to move all my sent mail to on, to sent on my Google IMAP box, delete all other sent mail boxes, but all settings to copy sent mail to my Gmail box sent box. And within a couple of days, new sent mail boxes begin appearing in my Gmail IMAP account as different devices save copies of mails to different sent folders. Number two, for my iPhone and iPad, I cannot control the return address. It always will send from gmail.com. I've tried toggling the SMTP mail server, but the return address is always Gmail. Number three, how do you get push to really work? It seems that mail only updates when I wake my phone and check mail. I usually think to check my mail in the elevator or outside my Wi-Fi network when I'm walking to a meeting or heading home. It would be great if my phone were actively pulling down mail and attachments during the day when I'm not checking it so that I do not have to wait for my phone to catch up. Okay, so I feel your pain because this is some of that wackiness with Gmail that we were talking about. So number one, with your sent mailboxes, uh, 
in order for it to store all your, well, the easiest way for it to store all your mail on Gmail is if you send everything through Gmail. And this is going to help us with the answer to question number two as well. Uh, so the first thing you need to do is go to each of your accounts on your iPhone or your Macs and set the SMTP server to be the one through Gmail. Now, uh, again, I'm going to refer to the instructions that we talked about before that we created about setting up the Gmail SMTP and, and IMAP implementation, because that's going to help you through this, that this article has instructions for both mail uh, on the Mac and on your iPhone or iPad. What you want to make sure you do is choose the Gmail sent uh, mail folder as the destination for your sent mail. Don't store on my device. Don't store in a different folder on the mail server. Choose the folder called sent mail on Gmail. That's going to be the, uh, the magic number step. And that is what that article uh, tells you. So uh, now you've got all your mail going through Gmail. And chances are when you do this on one of your devices, you're going to find that you had something uh, set wrong. It, it, it's a lot of computers and you got three computers, you got three accounts per, you got two I devices with three accounts per that's uh, five times three, 15 different mail accounts. You've got to do, uh, you're going to find something, you know, was screwed up painstakingly go through and do it. Number two, as far as the return address goes, John, we, we've talked about this before. Uh, once you're sending through Gmail by default, it will always make it come from Gmail. And this is a security thing. Google wants to make sure that you are sending from an address that is actually yours. And by default, the only address that Google knows is yours is your Gmail address. But you can change this. Uh, if you go to Gmail on the web, go to settings, go to accounts and import, you can add your address, other addresses here. Click the little button, add another uh, sent address. It will send an email to you at that address that you have to confirm. And now they know, ah, this is your account. You're good to go. Uh, also, once you've added your addresses here, choose reply from the same address the message was sent to. This will allow your mail clients to define the from address. Then uh, in the address field on your iPhone or iPad, set the address from which you'd like the mail to come. Not necessarily your Gmail address, but the address that you want the mail to come from. Uh, and that should, even with Gmail as your outbound, that's going to be the magic answer there. And lastly, as for push, it's not going to happen with Gmail. It's not going to happen with your work account. It's probably only going to happen with uh, your mobile me account. So you need to, uh, on your iPhone, if you go into settings mail, where we were before with the previous question, you'll see below the accounts, it asks fetch new data and you can choose to turn push on or off below that though. There is the fetch setting and the fetch setting is used for mail servers that do not support push with the iPhone or iPad. And that is something you're going to want to turn on and make sure it's not manually, but is at least hourly or 30 or 15 minutes, whatever works for you on your Mac. It will work with uh, what, what is essentially push. Uh, it's a protocol called IMAP idle, uh, and there's a setting in mail. If you go into mail preferences and you go to uh, accounts, choose the account and go to the advanced tab. 
you'll see it says use idle command if the server supports it. Turn that on and then there will be a persistent connection opened up to your mail server. And any time a new message comes in, boom, it will appear in your inbox immediately. So lots to digest there. I know, David, but I hope that uh, that that gets you somewhere. This actually is something that could also be turned into a Mac Geek Gab Answers article over on MacObserver.com. So perhaps we will you'll see that soon. Anything to add here, John? While I take, no, you, while I take uh, a drink? <laughs> you covered it, brother. Thank ah, you. Take your, take your drink. I uh, took tea? it. Uh, actually, seltzer water. Lime seltzer today. Ah. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Should we, uh, should we round this out with, uh, with yet another crazy one? And then, uh, and then move on to... Where are we here? In terms crazy. Of time? Uh, should, we do, should we do Carl or should we move on to Brad? Uh, well, all right, we'll do Carl. I don't know. Carl. Yeah, no, Carl, Carl, it's, it's worth repeating. I think it is. I think it is. This is a cool thing. Carl writes, I know you've covered this item before and I've searched for it, but I can't find it again. Somebody's saying another Mac geek gab answers article needs to be created. I have a MacBook connecting wirelessly and via ethernet to a time capsule. When I'm using iTunes connected to the time capsule, wirelessly moving files around, and I decide that things are moving too slow, I plug my spare Ethernet cable in, which is connected directly to my time capsule, into my MacBook. However, uh, how can I keep the same connection using either wireless or cable? If I do this while I'm moving a file, or if I turn off the airport wireless connection after plugging in the Ethernet cable, the file stops transferring. In network connections, I've moved Ethernet to the top and airport second. What more do I need to do? Okay, so to boil this down, what's happening here is Carl is starting a bunch of network connections wirelessly and then decides he wants to wants those connections, file transfers, things like that, uh, to benefit from the Ethernet speeds on his network. So he plugs in. The problem is those connections were started with the IP address that was assigned to Carl's wireless interface. And as soon as he plugs in, Ethernet takes over, gets a different IP address, Uh-oh. and the connections die, as they are supposed to. But there is, as we've talked about before, John, there is a magic way of doing this. And the trick is to have, and this is going to be sound strange and wrong, and in some No, it's crazy, Dave. I know what you're going to say, but you can't have more than one device with the same IP address on the network. That's insanity. So that's what that's what I'm going to say here is that you definitely want one one IP address for both your Ethernet and airport on uh, on your machine if you're going to do this. And I've I can I can state this confidently because I do this constantly. So what you do is you've got one of two ways of doing this. Uh, the easy way, and I think it'll work with most routers, is to go into system preferences network. And then uh, for your Ethernet port, you are going to change on the main screen there. You're going to change where it says configure IP version four. You're going to change this instead of using DHCP. You're going to change it to using DHCP with manual address. The cool part about this is that you get to set your IP address manually, but the subnet mask, the router address and the DNS server all are populated for you. Uh, however, before you change this, write down everything that was there just in case, because you're going to need it, uh, or take a screenshot command shift four. everybody know about this command shift three. will take a shot of the entire screen. 
Command Shift 4 gives you crosshairs. You can draw a little box on the screen and it will take a screenshot of just what you drew. So that's uh, that's our little handy extra bonus tip for the day. Uh, so take a little screenshot of that just to have it in case you need it. It'll appear on your desktop. Now, change it to use DHCP with manual address. Make sure the first three octets, and that is uh, the numbers before each period, uh, are the same as what they were previously. In many cases, it's either going to be 192.168.1 or you know 10.0.0 or one of these various things. But just take it and run with it. And then set the last one to something that's outside of your router's DHCP range because you don't want your router assigning this address to someone else accidentally. Your router will not know that you're doing this. At least it might not know. So if you see that your previous address was .101 or .105, chances are if you set your IP address of your machine to .50, everything's going to be fine. Uh, conversely, if it was in the, you know, in the fifties, set it in the hundreds. You're the number can be as high as two, uh, two. Don't go higher than two fifty. You, you can go a little higher than that, but good. Don't good advice. Thanks. There's no reason to, to, to drive yourself crazy going any higher than two fifty. There's plenty of addresses there. Also, don't use number one because that's probably what your router is on. Although for some reason, mine isn't here, but we'll talk about that another time. Uh, but anyway, set the manual address. If you can't set it manually with DHCP on, turn DHCP off and fill in all the stuff manually. That's the Ethernet port. On the airport port, you have to do something a little different. You choose airport, you go to advanced, and then you go to the TCP IP tab. And now it starts looking familiar and you change it to using DHCP with manual address. You fill in everything, but you're not done. Uh, make sure that something is filled in on the next tab, which is DNS. If you are using DHCP with manual, it will fill in. If you're using just manually, you have to fill it in manually. So that's TCP IP and DNS tabs. Both are going to require data. Once you're done with that, hit OK, hit apply. And now you're all set. Uh, I wouldn't recommend putting the same IP address on two different computers. But on two different interfaces on the same computer, it works very, very well. You may occasionally see errors in network logs on other machines or even on that machine saying, you know, there's essentially saying, hey, dude, you know, you got two devices with the same IP address. Don't worry about it. Mac OS 10 handles it just fine. So that's my that's my little wrap on that one. OK, great. You uh, you allayed my fears. Cause, uh... It's a cool thing to do. Especially if you, you know, if you get a laptop that you bounce around a lot and you want to take advantage of Ethernet, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't, I don't bounce my laptop around. You should juggle it. Get three, get two more, <laughs> and uh, and practice for the circus. It'll be. In fact, you could do it at Cirque de Mac at MacWorld Expo, which we've already started to put together a little bit here. Ah, wonderful. Yeah, laptop juggling. All right, so where are we time-wise here? We have time for a couple of other things. John, pick one of the either John pick one of anything, either from the follow-ups or from the uh, the additional questions we have there. Pick one of them, and 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 that's what we will do. Oh gosh, so pressure. many to choose from. I know there are there are so many to choose from. Well, I knew when we prepped this show that we wouldn't have enough Chris? time. Yeah, we can do. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. I like Chris. I mean, I, I don't know Chris. I like Chris's question. All right. Chris writes, 
I use a Western Digital 1.5 terabyte USB drive as time machine backup of my MacBook's 500 gigabyte drive. Recently, the machine stated I couldn't write to the time machine drive and subsequently refused to use that drive for time machine. I ran disk utility and it appears to have fixed the problems with the drive. And now time machine appears to be back to normal. My question is whether I should trust the integrity of my backups and whether I should perhaps reformat the drive and start again. Uh, all right. So this is a good, uh, this is a good, this is a good thing. So it's important to remember here, John, before we dive into this one, that this is not a network to drive, but it is connected directly to his Mac. My feeling on this is that uh, all disks eventually will suffer from what Chris is reporting here, which is file system corruption. That means that there's a, the way I always used to explain it is that there's a, there's all the data out on your hard drive, all the files, all the folders and all that stuff. And then there is the table of contents. That is the thing that says, here's all the files that we have. And here's where they live way out on the drive. If that table of contents gets corrupt, which Chris's did, then you're going to have problems. That's going to happen on your hard drive. That's going to happen on your, you know, your boot drive. It's going to happen on your backup drives. Uh, and disk utility can fix this sometimes. If it can't drive genius can or disk warrior can uh, time machine does some really funny things with the directory. So it doesn't surprise me that, uh, you know, time machine volumes are probably more susceptible to this than regular ones. And it's probably worth running disk utility on them, you know, every three, four months or so. So, um, so yeah, I, I would trust it if, if you've run disk utility and it's fixed it and it says it's okay. And especially then if time machine says it's cool, I, I'm good with it. What do you think, John? I meant the other Chris. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, we could do this, Chris. No, uh, 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 I'm with you. So, so, yeah, one thing, uh, again, I would be very interested in, in exactly what dialogue came up. Because um, sometimes I, I'd be concerned because I, actually I've seen this dialogue some, come up sometimes where it said it couldn't write to the drive. Typically it's because someone else is using it or you, you, you may have mounted it and forgot that you did. I've definitely seen this happen. Even though I use a Time Machine editor, I've had it come up sometimes and say, oh, unavailable, I'm not going to back up to the drive. Uh, I've never seen corruption though, but I'm with you in that you want to, um, you know, run something like this utility. And yeah, based on looking at this, it found a problem and it fixed it. Uh, so everything should be fine. Cause this looks like it was very minor damage, right? Uh, sometimes just based on what you see coming back from this utility, you can get a feel for how bad things are here. It was pretty minor. It was invalid volume free block count. You know, it was a number that, that it has, as you pointed out, Dave, in a part of the drive that kind of described what's what. Yep. But it's not major. Once you see errors that have to do with extents and catalog and multi-linked, and then you may want to throw in the towel. Because at that point, I see the disutility, it, it's beyond its capabilities to figure that stuff out. It just says, I don't know what sometimes, to do. It, but sometimes yeah. it can fix that stuff. I, I mean, sometimes, I, yes. But, yeah. but uh, a lot of times I'll see it where it says, I can't fix it it's time to spend some money <laughs> right? <laughs> to buy right. a better utility. De uh, another definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Another thing I'd suggest is that I believe you can run something like smart on the external drive. Absol uh, that's a different type or no, actually maybe not. It depends no, on the, not on external drives. It'll typically uh, some right, firewire right. chipsets will pass along the smart information. Uh, what we're mm -hmm. talking about here and John, you're going to tell us the acronym because you're that kind of guy. 
but uh, it smart is a technology that lets the drive report whether or not it has physical damage because the damage that we're talking about with Chris, Chris's issue here is what I'll call data damage where there's, there's just the wrong data in a spot and you can fix that. It happens to be the wrong data in a table of contents, but physically the drive here, uh, at least based on what we can tell, isn't exhibiting any symptoms of it dying, but yeah, checking the smart status, which John is self monitoring analysis and reporting technology. That's why I love you. Uh, it's uh, too man. All right. So, uh, <laughs> so, you know, that, that will tell the, the drive has the ability to know whether or not there are, bad sectors forming and all that. And it can report that back up the chain. Some firewire chipsets will pass that data along. Some will not. Uh, some USB chipsets may, I don't know that I've ever seen it with those, but yeah, uh, yeah. but you know, now, that's, that's how, that's how it goes. The other thing, Dave, so I have the time capsule. Yes. I don't know if you can do this with just a time machine drive. No, I don't think you can, but of course the time capsule gives you an opportunity to make a backup of the backup. Right, right. I want to toss that in the ring is do not have. So even though it looks like this backup is uh, fixed, I don't know if I trust it 100%. Uh, just in case. There's a way make to a test Make a backup it. of the backup. I well, I, I know. Yeah, I know you can verify. Yeah, you, you found this one. I would definitely. From the time machine menu. Yeah. But I'm still saying it, it. I don't think it hurts to every now and then make a backup of your backup. Yeah. Again, I wouldn't yep. want to rely 100% on this, uh, on this particular backup. I'd say 99.9% since it says, yep, I found a problem and I fixed it. But still, always have a backup of your backup, in my opinion. Yeah, I do that every now and then with the time machine. And the time machine, it makes it easy. It creates an image of the backup image on the time machine. And then you plug in an external disk and it basically, I think, just basically does a file copy over to an external drive. So you could certainly do that yourself. Just drag over the whole, you know, time machine back up to another drive and just squirrel that away somewhere. All right. Uh, that does wrap things up for us. We, we can be reached. All of the people that you heard in the show today knew how to reach us. And we want to make sure you know how to reach us too. email us at feedback at macgeekgab.com. And if you don't like that, you can instead use feedback at MacGeekGab.com. As a third option, feedback at MacGeekGab.com will also get to us in a pinch. You can email us text. You can email us pictures. You can email us screenshots. And we told you how to take them. Uh, you can email us uh, audio files. And lots of people do that, especially from their iPhones, because the voice recorder app will let you email basically right from there. If you want to call 206-666-GEEK, which John is 4335. And the show notes, of course, are available at MacGeekGab.com. If you're a premium subscriber, you can email us at premium at MacGeekGab.com, and we will address that separately and also potentially include it in one of our premium shows, the next of which will be show number 290, being recorded this Thursday afternoon, barring any scheduling uh, fun. I'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this show to AAC for your enhancement. 
Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth to get it from us to you. That's the show. Uh, Blog World Expo is in less than two weeks. I think we leave, what, next uh, Wednesday? Wednesday? Yeah, I think, I think so. so. No, we leave next Thursday. I think right, so. right, Thursday yeah, morning. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to be out there, let us know. I am doing a session on Friday at 12... 30-12-15 with, uh, with Gene McDonald from Smile Software about advertising on podcasts. So that's going to be a very interesting thing. Uh, speaking of advertising, the podcast marketplace, of course, includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, PDF Pen from Smile, Notebook from Circus Ponies. And, uh, and I think... That's, of course, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, that's it. Let's get out of here. Let's go. Let's go. Run, run, run. 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 <laughs> oh, yes. I've, I've seen seen some critters around the house running. Ah, uh, yes, you have. Hmm. Remember, John, you don't have mouse. <laughs> there's a mouse in the house. No one. No, there's I'm going to get him. No one has a mouse. John's mouse that lives in his house. Be very careful and don't get caught. Made up.